Well, good morning, everyone. I know that this is recorded, I mean, and being, I should say, in live streams, so all sorts of people are watching. So for those of you who are watching at home, don't be offended by this, but good morning to you who are the faithful frozen. <laughs> so if you're at home, I understand that. You have the freedom to be there, but I mean, this group right here, snow and all, out here, never stopping. I talked to one of you who said that you got up at five o'clock this morning specifically because you knew there'd be snow and you wouldn't miss church. So good morning to you. I mean, and I'm so glad you're here. When I left the house this morning, my wife was getting ready to do the snowblower. Good morning, honey. Um, I love you. But good morning to every, each and every one of you. Man, I, I've said this so many times, I'll say it again. I don't know how anyone gets through uh, you know, more than a week's time without worship like we just experienced. Uh, some of our worship team comes, from, comes down from St. Albans. Uh, they're here early this morning, ready to go, and just powerful worship. I know they probably can't hear me now. Their earbuds are out, and, and they're off uh, getting coffee, getting ready for the next service, or many of them will attend, but my thanks to them. Uh, I needed that, and I can't imagine how people get through it without it. So here we are. Where we are, we're on the countdown, of course, uh, to, uh, to Christmas. And now an official good morning to not only North Avenue family, those in the video cafe, anyone who was watching, and we're counting down. Now we're five days away until Christmas, Christmas Eve. And I just want to tell you, you're not going to want to miss Christmas Eve, but one of the great things, of course, about us streaming is you don't have to be here in person. And so uh, you can be at home with your family. If you feel safer there at home, be there and enjoy that night. As already said in the announcements, Rachel said in the announcements, starting at five o'clock, we'll have a stream. It's a shorter service, so be aware of that. Uh, what we've learned is that if you're at home watching with any kind of a, a group of people, uh, you are not gathering them up for an hour. You've got a good, you got a 50-50 you know, chance at a half hour. And uh, so that's what we're going to go for to be a 50, about a, about a half hour time. You have a chance to hear the, the message that night and then to join in for the singing of Silent Night and the candle lighting. So by all means, uh, participate as you can. And we're looking forward to it. We do have four live services. Uh, in-person services. There'll be three of them here and then one at North Avenue Alliance. And so by all means, join in and participate. We're down to the final week. A reminder again that we have our Christmas Eve services and no services on the Sunday after Christmas. And so by all means, enjoy your, enjoy your family and be a part of, uh, be a part of uh, this incredible time of year. Now, Christmas is coming, and of course, many of us will have family coming in. Some of us will be going to join family, even if they're not coming in, even if you're not joining them. I think this next statement would be true, and that is that every one of us in our family have some real winners, Every one of us in our families have some real characters. I mean, people that immediately some of you are smiling because you know who they are. Immediately you know who these winners are. Now, they could be on your side of the family. could be on your spouse's side of the family. Chances are they're on your spouse's side of the family. Um, that's kind of usually where they come from. I mean, but you've got them. Uh, you've got the people where you could just roll your eyes and tell stories. I've got them in my family. And if I had time and if this wasn't recorded, I could keep you laughing for hours when I tell you the stories of my winners. Now, if you feel bad about that, you're thinking, Pastor Scott, you can't say that. You, you can't say that you've got the real winners in your family. I, I can, because number one, I do. Um, I, I do, I have them. But here's the other reason why I can say that if you feel bad for any of my family members, because for some of my family members, they think I'm the real winner. 
Just so you know, in somewhere in the next four to five days, one of my family members will be talking and telling stories about this character. So don't feel too bad. The reality of it is we have them in our family. Now, whoever you are, you've got them. Jesus, as we've been looking in these past weeks together, he had him in his family line. He's got him in his family tree. And and the truth of it is, I would tell you some stories where you might laugh and they'd be humorous stories. But if you look at the family tree of Jesus and some of the people that are real winners in his family, they're not the laughing type stories. They're the roll your eyes, put your head down, shake your head in disbelief. Uh, The R-rated, the X-rated stories where you just look and you go, really, how can that be? And all through these past couple of weeks, every time we ask the question, why would Matthew, or the book of Matthew, why would Matthew include these stories in this greatest story ever told about Jesus? The answer every time is because Matthew knew that not only are they a part of the story, they are the story. That's why they're there. They're the storyline. Now, this is key. In the Jewish culture of Matthew's day, uh, that audience, the Jewish audience believed, now make sure you catch this because this would be a, a key reminder again. The Jewish audience of Matthew's day, they believed that God had invited us to come and to, to, to walk with him based upon the fact that we were or they were better. They believe that the reason why God came to them, the reason why God invited them in, invited the people in, was because of something that they carried. They had a righteousness of their own. They had something that they had done. They were special, and based upon that, God was inviting them to have a relationship with him because of what they brought to the table, not based upon the fact that God was going to do it for us, not us doing it for God. Got to get that. That's very key. This is very difficult for people to accept, and it was incredibly difficult for people of that day, and who Matthew's trying to relate to, to accept. Because see, down deep inside, none of us see ourselves as all that bad. Now, you're in church, and theologically, we've talked about this, and so you can kind of go, yeah, no, I get it. I am that bad. But the truth of it is, in the reality of how we perceive things, none of us see ourselves as being so bad that, that anyone else would turn their back on us. We look at ourselves and say, yeah, not bad. You know, not perfect, but not bad. And the people that Matthew's writing to, the people of that day, they would see themselves as not just not bad, but really, really good. So if God is going to have a a relationship with anybody, it would be them. But it's not about us and how good we are or what we offer. And so Matthew makes it a point to show that every one of us need grace and mercy and forgiveness. Now, we have have the point for us today, and we're going to look at today a key character that the Messiah needed to come from. If you know a little about the history and been here the past couple of weeks, you know that the key character in the lineage line was David. The key prophetic word was that whoever the Messiah was going to be had to come from the lineage of David. So Matthew makes it a point to expose the faults of this person that mattered most to them. David makes, I mean, uh, the, Matthew makes it a point to expose those faults. Now, Matthew comes to King David, and instead of stopping right there uh, at this high point, when it finally gets to King David and just leaving it, it gets really, really messy. Because we talked about this. He gets to King David, and King David, in this portion of the story of King David's life, is the black eye of Israel, and he brings it up. You see, David is the guy most closely associated with the name of Jesus, but at one key season in David's life, he's an abysmal failure. 
I mean, he's the key person. Everyone knows that it really doesn't matter the family tree. You got to have the David in there. And David in a season of his life was a total train wreck. David, out of insecurity, tells a lie. That lie results in 80 priests, over 80 priests being murdered. David abandons his most loyal man, his, uh, one of his lo- lo- most loyal uh, warriors, and has him put to death, actually murdered, because he's hiding a secret. So again, let's start with our text here this morning. Our last, our last uh, Sunday in this series, Matthew chapter 1. And this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashan. Nashan, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, if he just would have stopped with King David, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of, uh, of Rehoboam, everything would be good. But no, he, he, and, and, he has, and the thing that's funny about Matthew writing this up, he has so many other choices he could go with. Well, you know, King David, the father of Solomon, King David, the shepherd boy, King David, the giant killer, King David, the kingdom builder, King David, the psalmist. But no, he goes with, and David, the adulterer, the murderer, and the liar. You go, now, I don't see that in there. All of that's in there when he mentions Uriah, the, who's the mother of Solomon. All of it's in there. And that's where he kind of lands. Now, let's talk about David's story this morning. Each week, we've taken a character from this story, some of them with pretty bad reputations. This morning, I want to look at David and kind of walk through his history. Now, before I start reading in, in the first Samuel chapter 7, let me give you some background. Some of this you might recall. We had a series we did on David. You might recall some of that from that series. But let me walk through this. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the biblical story because we don't have time to go through multiple chapters and read the whole story. So, I need to fill in some gaps here as we kind of look at David's life. Now, the story of David takes place about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, and here's what happens. Now, at that time, they're waiting, of course, for a Savior to come. The whole, the whole prophetic word is someday, someday a Messiah will come, but they have no idea back then what this all means, just that there's going to be a lineage and a line. Now, some of this, some of you will recall from our series, there's a, a prophet named Samuel. And at that point in time, God spoke to the people through the prophets. So these were very powerful people. Powerful not in their own power, but because they represented and they spoke with God, for, for God. Now at that time, God spoke and led the people all through the prophets. Now remember God's plan all along, and we've talked about this before. God's plan all along for Israel was real simple. He would be their king. They would not have an earthly king. The plan all along, God said, I will be your king. But the problem is the people didn't like being different. If you, if you read the text, you'll see over and over again, they wanted to be like everyone else. Everyone else had an earthly king. Everyone else had, a, had some ruler or some leader, and they wanted to be like them. They had kind of an attitude that said they're kind of, they're kind of tired of not being like everyone else. And so they complain and they complain and they complain to Samuel. And Samuel goes before God and says this, God, I have told them and told them what you want. I've told them the right thing, but they really want a, a human king. They've totally rejected what I've said to them. God speaks in that moment and says to Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have actually rejected me. 
So then God sends Samuel back to them and says this. I'm going to send you back, but here's what you're going to tell them. If you really want a human king, remember what goes with that. If you really want a human king, just please know that human kings will come and they're going to be human kings. They're going to take every advantage that human kings take, which means that if you want a human king and I give you one, that human king's going to come take all of your, your young men and make them servants and make them soldiers. He's going to take your young women, make them wives and make them servant girls as well. Taxes. Can you say taxes? They're going to tax you. In fact, if you've got a vineyard and have property, they're going to take part of your property and part of their vineyard because that's what kings do. That's what you want. They came back and said, yes. They said, they don't care about any about that, any of that. We want a human king. We're tired of when people say to us, well, where is your king having to point up there? We want to say he's right over there on the throne. He's holding, he's holding session right now in the, in the king's court. We want a human king. So God says, okay. He gives them a king named Saul. If you go back and look at Saul's qualifications, he had two key ones. One, he was handsome, and two, he was the tallest guy around. I mean, those are his qualifications. Good-looking guy, and he was about a foot taller than everyone else. What else do you need to lead the people? Now, if you look at that and you think, man, those are pretty weak qualifications. Let me give you a key statement, not only for that time, but for today, and and that is this. You don't need great qualifications if God the one who chooses you. You don't have to have great qualifications if God's one who chooses you. Now, please know this. Here's the application right off the bat. That's not just for him. That's for you. You see, there's going to be time in our lives in the church and serving God where God will call you to do something. God will call you to serve him in some capacity, and you're going to go, ah, I don't think I'm qualified. You don't need to have great qualifications when God's the one who says, I want you to do this. So for some of you who hear God nudge you to serve, and you won't serve because you're not sure you're qualified, stop it and get in the game. So the problem with Saul, though, was not the lack of qualifications because God's calling makes up for any lack of qualifications. Settles that real quickly. The problem with Saul is that he failed by not obeying God. There's the problem. God chooses Saul. Saul leads, conquers a strong leader, but he doesn't do what God says. In fact, Samuel comes to Saul and says this, you have done a foolish thing in front of God. And that foolish thing is you won't obey God. And then he says to Saul this, you know, had you just been obedient, you'd been king forever. Had you just been obedient, you'd be the king forever, and God would so richly bless you. But now, you're going to be replaced. You're done. There's going to be another king, another king that I'm going to anoint, a man after God's own heart. God sends Samuel to Bethlehem. Saul's now still king, but now the time's ticking. And God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to see a guy named Jesse. He says, I want you to go to Jesse's house because one of Jesse's sons is going to be this next king. And so I want you to go there and you're going to anoint them. And Samuel says, well, how will I know who it is? God says, I'll show, I'll show you. You'll know. Now, don't forget, remember, remember our series, don't forget when the prophet came to town, everyone was scared to death because prophets were usually prophetic in their doom. Prophetic because of sin, calling people out in sin. On top of that, he wasn't just coming to Bethlehem. He's going to Jesse's house. Jesse was not happy. In fact, God knew this and sold him right in front. Tell them they're okay. Tell them there's no no, uh, curse coming, nothing of that, but absolute blessing. So Jesse's a little nervous. Samuel says, relax. I'm actually coming to worship with you. We're going to have a feast together to God, and I'm going to bless your family. 
And so he comes and he says, so bring me your sons because while I'm here, let me bless each of your sons and, and let me see them. We'll worship together. So agreed. Son one comes and Samuel goes, man, this has got to be the guy, the oldest guy, best stature. God says, not him. And then comes son two and then son three, son four, son five, still nothing, son six, son seven, nothing. Samuel says to Jesse, uh, is there another Jesse in town? Maybe I got the wrong Jesse of Bethlehem. Is there another one? And because I don't see, a, uh, I'm looking for, are all your sons here? And Jesse goes, no, I have one more who's out tending sheep. And so Samuel says, well, go and get him, bring him. I want to bless him as well. And of course, they bring in David and David, and God says to Samuel, that's the one. 13 years old, and God says to Samuel, go and anoint him. Nobody knew why, knew why he was being anointed. David did not know. No one knew but Samuel. And so he anointed David to be the king at one day. And it wouldn't be right away, it'd be roughly 17 years later. So you got this 13-year-old kid that walks in unpolished, uh, pretty rough, I mean, coming out of the fields, and he's going to be the king. And one day, of course, he does become king. 17 years later, he's king, and uh, he is now uh, in the palace. He's out on the porch looking down one day, and here's what happens. He says this. He looked down, and he saw the tent, which was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where God's dwelling place was. And he's in his palace. He looks at that tent, and he says, man, this is just wrong that I'm in here in a home. I'm in a permanent house in a palace, and God's place of residence is still a tent. And so he makes a vow. He says, you know what? I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to build a temple. And so David begins to put in plan, the plan to build the temple. He puts the plan in place, starts the fundraising, and gets ready for that day. Well, speed up a little bit. God sends another prophet along. This guy's name is Nathan. And he sends Nathan to David with some good news, some bad news, and some great news. And here's our text in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I've cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. Now stop there and we'll continue on a moment, but just think about this. About 3,000 years ago, when Nathan told David, I'm going to make your name great, you just help that prophetic word continue to be true. Because chances are, well before I mention his name this morning, everyone here has heard of King David. That's what comes with great names. Great names means that for thousands of years, people still know your name. So you're witnessing the fact that that prophecy is true, the very fact that you have heard of the name, name King David. Now, verse 11, and you, and, and you have done ever since the time I appointed you leaders over my people Israel, and says this, I will also give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you establishing a house for you. That's to say, and that, and that terminology means, by house means generations. It means he's going to establish a house for you, a lineage for you. And so God says, I'm going to get generations that will follow, will know you. Verse 12, when your days are over and your rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up from your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom, which means you're going to have a king. He's a son who's going to be king. 
And your throne and your heritage continues on. Verse 13. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne for his kingdom forever. Right there, some bad news mixed in with good news. See, David was getting ready to build the temple, and he says, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a heritage, and he's the one who's actually going to build the temple. So all of a sudden, he hears for the first time, it's not going to be him who will build the temple. And now we come to the key part, key part of this. There's an interesting change that happens here, which is kind of subtle, and I'll tell it to you before we get there, that he keeps talking about Solomon, it talks about the son, but actually if you look a little deeper in the Hebrew, you find that the combination of these two is not just Solomon, but he's talking about David as well. And here's what it says in verse 13. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. Now, there's a subtlety there, like I won't take time to break down, but there's a switch that happens in some of the wording that he's not just talking about Solomon, but he's talking about David and Solomon. He's giving him this promise that says, listen, what's going to happen here is I'm going to bless your kingdom. I'm going to bless your kingdom through him. When he talks about I will be his father and I will establish the throne of the kingdom forever, he's not just talking about what he's going to do for Solomon, but he's saying to David, this is the promise I give to you. That your heritage will be blessed, your lineage will be blessed, your kingdom will be blessed. See, Solomon's kingdom was David's kingdom. And God says, David, when you or you people disobey me, I am going to punish them because I'm a good father. But please know my blessing still stands. Now, here comes the key part of the whole text in verse 15. But my love will never be taken away from him As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Now, there you see that combination where he's talking to both Solomon and to David. Now, what's real key here is this. He just finishes saying, there's going to be disobedience, and when there's disobedience, there's going to be consequence, because I'm a good father. And every good father, every good parent disciplines their children. It's just that simple. But then right on the heels of that, he says, but my love will never be taken from him. And he talks again about this throne. See, every child that's ever been punished in the time of punishment questions whether the parent still loves them. I can attest to that. Many times as a child, in the, middle of a, in the middle of discipline, I would sit there and you just knew that your parents don't love you. If they loved you, they certainly wouldn't do this to you, right? Every child knows that, even grown children. And so God says, listen, there's going to be discipline, there's going to be consequences, but the key part, but my love will never be taken from him. Last part of the verse, and your throne will be established forever. An unconditional promise given to David. You're not going to build the temple, but your family and your kingdom and your throne will be established forever, and my love for you will never change. Now, then four chapters later in David's life, if you will, four chapters later in the book we're looking at, David does test God's patience to the max. He sees Bathsheba, and you know that story. He sees Bathsheba. He knows that she's married. He knows that she's married to one of his great generals named Uriah, who's actually out fighting for him at that time. That's why she's home alone. Sees her, wants her, has her brought to the, to the palace, actually sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. So immediately, she's now pregnant, and like most people, our thought process, and again, when we're in trouble, is this thought, how do I cover it up? 
That's usually where we go first, right? How do I hide this? How do I pretend it didn't happen? How do I cover it? Not how do I own it? Not how do I deal with it? How do I hide it? And so he has a plan. He goes, I got it. I'm going to bring Uriah back from the battle to give me a report. And when he comes to give me a report, uh, he'll stay the night. He'll go home. He'll sleep with his wife. They haven't been together for a while. Sleep with his wife. He goes back to battle. She's pregnant. Problem solved. He calls Uriah back from the front lines, has him give a report, says to him, well, thank you for the report. Now go home and be with your wife. You know, just get out of here and go have some fun. So he leaves and he goes, problem solved. Problem is next morning, one of his servants come and says, you know, your servant Uriah, I don't think he went home last night. And David said, well, what do you mean? Where, where is he? Well, he slept out. I think he slept in front of the, the palace gate. So David gets Uriah and says, hey, did you go home last night? He goes, no. He goes, well, why wouldn't you go home and, you know, sleep in your own bed with your own wife? I mean, why wouldn't you do that? He said, listen, as long as the Ark of the Covenant, which don't forget they carry the Ark when they went into battle, and that Ark of the Covenant is in a tent out in the battlefield. He goes, as long as the Ark is out under a tent and in the middle of the battle, and as long as my men are out there facing battle, how dare I go home and sleep in my own house? So I slept right here in front of the palace gate last night. Okay, that's not going to work, David thinks. So what else do I do? Ah, I know. The guy's got, the guy's got character. The guy has, uh, clearly has a sense of character and a sense of integrity. So what's the one thing through all of history that wrecks character integrity? Alcohol. I got it. Here's what he says. He goes, I'll get him drunk. Because, you know, drunkenness always takes care of character. And so he hasn't come back and says, I want you to come have dinner with me. Have dinner with him. Loads him up on alcohol. Gets him drunk. And now he says, now go home. And so he leaves. Same thing. Next morning they find out he didn't go home. So here's the key. Even drunk and full of liquor, Uriah has incredible integrity. Now, I got to tell you right now, I'm, if I'm God, I'm stopping the story. I said, you know what? I'm going to make a quick change here. Uriah, you're going to be king. Right? I mean, think about this. This guy, in his worst state of being, you know, overeating and drinking, he still has character and he still has integrity that David does not have. At that point, if you're God, just call an audible, call a timeout real quick and say, I'm going to be quick, David, you're out, you're in. But I got anointed. Yeah, I'll anoint him. He's in, you're out. Because he's got integrity. Nope, God sticks with David. So then David does an incredible, incredibly horrible thing. He's got a new plan. The new plan is to get Uriah killed. So he makes an order out to his key general, the, the, the guy in charge of the whole army. And he goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah and his men in the front lines. And then I want you to advance. And then somehow I want you to have everyone else retreat, but keep his men up front so that they'll be killed. And then he takes an actual note, the orders, and gives them to who? Uriah to deliver. So go back, to your, go back to the front line and give this to Joab, the, uh, the general. He, Joab reads it and goes, okay, king's the king. We've got to have a plan here. Puts your eye in the front line, does the very thing, front of the battle, calls his guys to retreat. And what's interesting about the story, if you take time to read it, they all retreat and still Uriah and his men with such character and such tenacity they don't die right away. In fact, the text says that while everyone else retreated, they actually chased the enemy back to their own, to their own uh, city, their walled city. They kept fighting and chased him. And if you read the story, an archer on top of the wall finally got an arrow 
into Uriah and killed him. Immediately, David's thinking, ah, I can be a hero here. I'll marry Bathsheba. I'll look good because I'm marrying the the general's wife and take care of her. Problem solved. Wrong. Why? Because though no one else knew what he did, one key person knew. God. Problem wasn't solved because God knew. God knows. Verse, uh, Verse 27. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, speaking of Bathsheba, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the king had done what the king had done displeased the Lord. Now God has to make a decision. Do I keep the promise that I gave? Do I keep it to a guy who is an incredible failure or do I keep it? And God says, well, my love is unconditional, but man, this is really bad. I mean, my love is unconditional, but this really presses every button here, and no one would blame him. Let's be honest. Let's be really honest. Would any one of us here blame God if with all that bad behavior, he were to say, I just can't go forward with it? Now, I know the group here, and the group is because you understand the Bible and unconditional love, you're going to say, oh, God can't do that. But let's be honest, humanly, not one of us would flinch because we've done that. We've said to people, yeah, I'll give you this or I'll do that or whatever, but they fail miserably and you begin to go, ah, boy, yeah, but it's so bad. How can I trust you when you've so betrayed the trust? So God has a moment here. We, We look at it and we'd say, boy, humanly, but nope, God's sticking with David. Now, Nathan goes back to David and actually says to David, you've done evil before God. Now, a side note If you look at the behavior of David and you wonder how David could be a man after God's own heart, if you read the text, you'll find that when Nathan confronts David with what he's done, he's completely broken. In fact, it says that he goes to the tabernacle, which is the dwelling place of God, and he falls down on his face and he begins to cry saying, God, I have sinned against you right to his heart. In fact, if you want to read Psalm 51 sometime, don't read it during the service, I'm watching you, but Psalm 51, not, if you're watching online, I can't see you, but the rest of you don't do it. <laughs> Psalm 51 is actually David's prayer. I have sinned, I have sinned against you, God. God forgives David. Doesn't mean no consequences, because don't forget, there are consequences, but he's totally forgiven. A new day, new David. He's made clean, forgiven, a new heart. But again, still consequences. If you know the story of David, his family was split. The kingdom was split. At one point, he has to leave the palace disgraced because his own son's trying to kill him. But God's unconditional love and promise still intact. Still intact. David's bad behavior does not and could not stop God or make God break his promise. Make sure you get that. David's incredibly bad behavior could not keep God from keeping his promise. God's promise to David and his love for him, his, his blessing on him, all of those things were as rock solid as ever despite his behavior. Now, David's life is a complete train work, train wreck. I mean, completely just falling apart. His betrayal of Uriah with Bathsheba becomes known publicly. Everyone hears it and knows about it. A complete disaster. But now hear this. In spite of all of that, 990 years later, 990 years later, a man named Joseph with a wife named Mary who's pregnant 
make their way to a town to be taxed. And you remember the name of the town? Bethlehem. And what was the nickname of the town of Bethlehem? Town and city of David. Here's this abysmal failure. And yet they're going to step into the city of David about a thousand years later. And then while they're there, you know the story, they give birth. They give birth to the great, 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 great grandson of King David. His name is Jesus. Because God keeps his promises. If you want to take a theological note, here you go. God's promises are never contingent on your performance. Aren't you glad for that? God's promises in your life, God's faithfulness in your life is never contingent upon you, is never contingent upon your behavior, is never contingent upon you getting it right. Now, if you're Matthew and you know that you're an ex-tax collector, if you know that you're an ex-cheat, if you will, if you know what it's like to be forgiven, if you're Matthew and you know that what God did for you has nothing to do with your own self-righteousness or what you have to offer because God actually redeemed you when you had absolutely nothing to offer, and you're Matthew and you know that, and if you are about to tell the greatest story ever, ever told about a Savior coming into the world, dying and paying for all of mankind's sin so that every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl can come to God regardless of who they are, or regardless of what they've done, and if you know that not only can they come to God, but that he loves them unconditionally, and on top of that will use them powerfully, and if you're Matthew and you're going to tell the story to a group of people that hold King David in the highest regard and highest esteem, how could you skip this part of the story, right? I mean, you have to include it. That's why I keep saying it's, the, it's not just a part, but it is the story. It's the point. Now, as we move towards wrapping up, let's fill in a couple of pieces because here's the transition you need to see. So God gave to David an individual promise. I'm going to bless you. I will always love you and your family unconditionally. But let's speed up in our, our remaining moments to the New Testament and understand that God does another promise. Only now it's not to an individual. Now it's to people in general, to a whole group of people. And remember, God keeps his promises. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. You know, you are part of all the people. Got that, right? He said, I got good news. It's going to be for everybody. It's going to bring great joy to all the people. You are part of all the people. You are, we are all of the people. He says, he didn't say, hey, I've got good news for the Jewish people. I've got new, new, uh, great news for the people back then. I've got great news for all the good people, for all the nice people, for all the happy people. I've got great news for all the generous people, all the tithing people, all the giving people. Doesn't say that I've got great news for all the Republican people or the Democratic people. Doesn't say that. He says... All the people. Now, quick application. Not only does that mean you, but that also means all the people that you have a problem with. You see, 
we're very quick to grab a hold of the you part of the all. If I say you are part of all the people, we go, yeah, I am. And all the people you have a problem with, they're part of the all the people. Wait, what? You know, all the people who disagree with you and things, all the people on the other side, other side of whatever issue you're on, all the people who've hurt you, harmed you, they're part of all the people too. He says, I got good news for all of the people. And then verse 11, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Here, there, he says, in the town of David. David, the promise breaker. David, the adulterer. David, the unfaithful. David, the murderer. I mean, there's great hope for you and for me, right? Because God keeps his promises. So this guy, David, has a town called the town of David. And then verse 12 and verse 14 of Luke, our last passage. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So there's a great promise in there and that promise is peace. God promised you peace. God has promised me peace. But there is a key to enjoying that peace. It says you have to have the favor of God. He said, I'm going to promise you peace will rest on you and your life to all of those on whom God's favor rests. And for many of us, we go, oh, why did he put that in there? Because I got to tell you, Scott, if you actually knew the hidden parts of me, you know I'm no candidate for the favor of God. See, unfortunately, a lot of us think that way because we're still thinking that God's promises are based upon us. And so for many of us, we'll look at our lives, we'll look at some of the dark history in our lives, we'll look at some moment in our lives, we'll look at that thought process in our life that we can't seem to shake. We'll look at that area where we know that we said before, if we kind of pull back the layers and could see your heart, the real you, maybe there'd be a label associated with your name. And when you see that, you go, God, I am no, fa- I am no, I am, I'm not in line for God's favor. You couldn't be more wrong. Anyone who puts her, his or her faith In Jesus Christ, any of all who would say, I trust you, you have the favor of God. Anyone who would place their trust in God has the favor of God. Peace is promised to all in whom his favor rests. Let's close. Let's wrap up. I'm going to give you two closing applications. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never given your life over to God, if you've never said, okay, God, I surrender. Okay, God. You know my history. You know that this history, I keep putting my head down and shaking at. My, my history, I keep trying to hide. The history, the part of my life, well, I tr- keep pretending that, that it never happened. I wish it would go away. God, you see that, don't you? And yet you still love me. If you've never given your life over to Jesus Christ, I need you to know that until you do, you will never have peace. Because you see, as long as that sin resides in us, that's the great obstacle to peace. If you're going to carry your sin, you're going to carry your past, you have to know, no peace. Ah, maybe momentary moments and glimpses of it, but not lasting peace. The Christmas message, Jesus came to permanently remove your sin so that you can have peace. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, do it. And you're on the path to peace because you'll have the favor of God. But then there are those of us who are believers 
And I know, because I've been a believer for a long time, and I know that I've walked with a numbers of us for many, many years, I know there are some that are thinking, but Scott, I've given my life to Christ, and peace seems to be elusive. I've given my life to Jesus, there's no question there, but I, I still don't feel like I have that peace. So I want to remind you, don't forget, trusting God is not a one and done deal, right? Now, trusting God for your salvation, for my eternity, is one and done. I give that to him, and he goes, I got you. Sin forgiven, covered. Eternity is yours. But the daily trusting of God is not a one and done deal. It's not like one day you go, God, I trust you. I'll never have to worry about trusting you again. No, every single day we trust him. I'll tell you what I've learned in my own life, and it goes like this. I have learned that when I'm running short on peace, it's because I have stopped trusting God. Listen, we got a lot of stuff happening in our world today. We got a lot of stuff that's frightening in our world today. I mean, forget the COVID piece. Take that piece out of it. We still got problems. And all you have to do is focus on it, and you will not have peace. But in the middle of the problems, in the middle of the crisis, when you focus on him, what do you have? Peace. Because what you're saying again is, God, despite all of this, I will trust you. I've come to learn when I'm short on peace, it's because I've taken my eye off of God and I'm beginning to look at how can I fix the problem? What will I do in light of all of this? I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. You have a Savior. His name is Jesus. Final sentence. If God would keep his promise to David, he'll keep his promise to you. What a great story. And the people found peace because God keeps his word. Stand, please, let's pray. Father, I'm just amazed. I am so thankful. I am so thankful for David's story. I'm so thankful for all these other stories of failure that we've looked at. Because the truth of it is, I relate better to the stories of failure than I do to the stories of great success and pure righteousness. I relate to the people of Matthew's genealogy that have failed and have fallen. And I am encouraged when I realize that you kept a promise to David when most of us in our human thinking, we would have swapped David out for a different king at any given time. And yet you said, nope, I'm keeping my promise. I pray for the person this morning hearing these words, watching this service, that struggles with who they are in you. When they look and they say, man, I am no candidate for God's favor. Oh, how I pray that you would silence the evil one and you would let them know they're the prime candidate for your favor. They are the reason why you came to bring peace so that they would have peace. Remind every one of us of that as we come into this week of Christmas. We're going to be busy with things to be done and, and uh, preparations to be made and news to watch and things to worry about. We got the whole deal. But in the middle of all of that, might we remember those simple words that you have promised us your peace and your peace will be in the life of everyone on whom your favor rests. And that simply means that we say to you, we trust you. Dismiss us in your grace. Amen. God bless you.